Last time on the Classic Horrors Club podcast, we are going to be enjoying some uh, made-for-television films. We have a couple of new members to welcome on the Classic Horrors Club Facebook group page. We always throw up. This is Steve Sullivan. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print. Club. Television viewing was vastly different. Tuesday movie of the week. Our first movie is when Michael calls Leacock Captain Kangaroo. Aren't you glad you used dog? Shelley Winters. Raven, why are you mean you're leaving? Devil's Daughter. We're getting some interference with the antenna or something. I'm I'm trying to adjust it. You're kind oh, of buzzing yeah. out on me. I need to check into this. I certainly hope we don't get cut off. We are back after some technical difficulties, courtesy of a kind of a wonky antenna. We have fine-tuned it. We are back and getting crystal clear, non-high definition for some continued conversation on early 1970s made-for-TV movies. Richard, I prefer to think of it instead of technical difficulties that in the tradition of fine 70s television programming, it was a two-parter and we left everyone with a cliffhanger and they've been hanging on the edge of their seats for two weeks. Yeah, it's the big season premiere part two, episode number 48 of the Classic Horrors Club podcast. We should introduce ourselves. Yeah, I was going to say, we are still us. I'm still Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club, and you are? The part of Richard Chamberlain. (laughs) (laughs) I am Richard Chamberlain of KCCinephile.com and MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. You know, Richard, it's funny. Our part one has not even aired yet, and we already have feedback. That's how good we are. Bill Mize has some comments about one of the movies we talked about last time. When Michael Calls, what we both thought was a great movie and gave two thumbs up. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Rich. It's your boy Bill Mize calling in with some feedback on the 1972 ABC movie of the week, When Michael Calls. Now, this movie, this genre, really brought up some nostalgic feelings back when there were only three big networks, PBS and the Red-Headed Stepchild up on UHF, which is probably where most of us monster kids lived when it came to watching our favorite horror hosts. I'm going to give a shout-out to WTOG Channel 44, Tampa St. Petersburg, and my own beloved Dr. Paul Okay, back to the matter at hand. The ABC Movie of the Week. Now, the funky graphics, the music, the basso profundo voice of the narrator. I was immediately thrown back to being 12 years old, just moved from Chattanooga to St. Petersburg, and sitting in front of a monolithic color console television that the family had purchased from Sears. Now, viewed through 12-year-old eyes, when Michael calls, would probably be considered kind of boring, what with all the divorce and separation and relationship stuff, but with occasional flashes of wonder, such as Death by Bees, 
death by jack-o'-lantern, and a near-miss death by barn fire. Now, the real piece de resistance here would be the phone calls. Yeah, that's the real attention grabber here, the phone calls. Each phone call brings the high-pitched, fearful voice of Michael, the harbinger of death into the lives of Ben Gazzara, Elizabeth Ashley, and Michael Douglas. When it comes to the stars or leads of the movies of the week, I tend to put them into two camps, up-and-comers, such as Michael Douglas, and old reliables, such as Ben Gazzara and Elizabeth Ashley. When it comes to Gazzara and Ashley, it, it is what it says on the tin. They are trustworthy, steady, and they deliver the goods. No one's going to win an Emmy here. That would come later when they aired Brian's song with James Caan and Billy D. Williams. But the plot moves, the high points are hit, there is a verdict in the court of karma, and there's usually some sort of G-rated happy ending. When it comes to the cast, the true standout is Michael Douglas. This movie of the week, while filmed in late 1971, was released earlier in the same year that Douglas would skyrocket to fame, co-starring with Carl Malden in The Streets of San Francisco. Douglas' character Craig starts out as a professional, even-keeled psychiatrist and slowly devolves into someone who should be on the other side of the desk and heavily medicated. Now, sure, there is a distinct lack of character development and more plot holes than a mysterious semi-driver could drive through, but this is still above average made-for-TV movie that gives us peak Ben Gazzara and a vision of things to come for Michael Douglas. Thank you both for this opportunity. It was a fun trip down memory lane, and I'm sure I'm not the only older monster kid who enjoyed it. Keep up the good work, and more importantly, keep true to your vision of the show. I wish you both and your listeners the best. Please take good care of yourselves, and I will talk to you soon. Thank you, Bill, for that uh, great feedback. And uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty much in agreement. I think these movies are great. And just hearing your voice reminds me that you're continuing to do great work over at your podcast. You're going through some changes. So uh, we want to give you a shout out and give you warm wishes there as you are fine-tuning your own podcast a little bit. I don't know what, what's coming. I don't, I don't even think we've heard behind the scenes, but there's some changes I'm excited to hear what you're going to be doing in the uh, near future. And it sounds like maybe the Bill Watches Movies podcast is is not necessarily gone forever. It just may be less frequent. So it sounds like he's going to be doing two podcasts, kind of like well, my good friend Terry down in Australia. He does the Paleo Cinema podcast and the Martian Drive-In podcast and kind of alternates between the two. Best of luck, and uh, we'll be listening. We don't have our own Patreon, but Bill does. And I believe if you're a patron, you will know first exactly what his plans are. And I'm very eager to hear because he puts on a quality podcast. I've really enjoyed the episodes he's done for Bill Watch's movies. Where are we in this crazy timeline, Richard? I believe we're in 1973. It's the fall preview 
TV Guide is out, it's the new fall season. Paint us a picture of 1973. What is going on? In the fall of 1973, we had some new shows. We had some uh, shows that had ended. If you were looking for Bonanza or Mission Impossible or Family Affair, you were out of luck. They ended their run. Hard to believe that Bonanza was on that late because it was on for a very long time, but uh, all their shows ended. Kind of interesting. I just saw, I think, yesterday that the entire series of Mission Impossible is coming out in some box set. Uh, I know they've been out on DVD before, but I guess they're coming out now on Blu-ray, so they're getting maybe a high def. That's a Star Trek reference, by the way. Leonard Nimoy played Paris on Mission Impossible. Yeah. So, Some new shows uh, that started uh, in the fall. And we, I guess we should give a shout-out to Barnaby Jones. That started January of 73, so it was coming back for its second full season. Kojak, I know, started on October 24th. Saturday mornings, I should mention, Schoolhouse Rock actually started in January of 73. I watched that every single Saturday. It was always ABC or, or CBS were seemingly everything I watched was on those except for Land of the Lost, which hmm. was on NBC. <laughs> September 8th, 1973, two of my favorite Saturday morning cartoons debuted on the same week. Star Trek, the animated series, or it was just called Star Trek, and Super Friends. And Star Trek was NBC, Super Friends was ABC. A little later in the fall, a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving aired for the first time on November 20th. That is still an annual watch for me amongst all the other holiday Snoopy and Peanuts cartoons. American Bandstand still going strong. They had, at some point, I think it was in the fall, they had Steely Dan on to sing the song, My Old School. And I've never heard of it. I was like, who, when, where did this song come from? It was a hot, hot hit. Peaked at number 63 on the charts. So <laughs> they, they got on the bandstand. It didn't help. We had some other made-for-TV movies. There was uh, Baffled with Leonard Nimoy. Uh, the Night Strangler, Frankenstein, The True Story, Satan's School for Girls, The Return of Charlie Chan. And I got to, this is where I'm going to segue into The Six Million Dollar Man. We had a pilot movie that aired in the spring called The Six Million Dollar Man. Two more movies aired in the fall. October, we got Wine, Women, and War. And in November of 73, we got The Solid Gold Kidnapping. I talk about The Six Million Dollar Man and these three pilot movies over at the Memiverse uh, Monthly Audio Cast, the September episode. I talk way more than I probably should have about The Six Million Dollar Man because it's all fresh in my mind. We just wrapped up that uh, series and we're getting ready for the uh, animated, or the animated, the uh, reunion movies. Six Million Dollar Man was, uh, I remember watching it in the fall of 73. Then in January of 74, uh, midway through that uh, television season, uh, it debuted on television as a weekly series and ran for eventually five seasons and got a spinoff series, The Bionic Woman, and merchandising everywhere, which I still have action figures. I've got two Steve Austins. I've got a Maskatron. I used to have the big dome center that had a blow-up dome and cardboard, you know, panels and a plastic seat for them to sit on and they never could sit properly because it was too small. And 
If I wasn't playing with that, I was running in slow motion in my backyard. Hear me talk about that over at the Mimiverse uh, audio cast. And then later in September on my blog, I'm going to be doing an article about the three reunion movies. So kind of tying all my different things into this made for TV theme. And of course, the fall of 73 is when our first movie that we're going to talk about this week was on. But do you have anything else? Uh, yeah, I've got about? some other shows I made note of as I was flipping through the 1973 fall preview TV guide. Happy Days premiered on ABC. That was a favorite. I That's something I remember distinctly. A Tuesday night, I believe, and we had something at school, PTO meeting or Cub Scouts or, or something, and I had to get home to watch Happy Days. I remember that. Good Times premiered on CBS. The new Perry Mason on CBS. Just like the new Dick Van Dyke show last time, I don't know anything about the new Perry Mason. The Magician on NBC. I love that with Bill Bixby. The Snoop Sisters on NBC. Notable because Vincent Price was in an episode of that. Out of these shows, not many of them were big hits. Happy Days didn't even crack the top 20 in its first season. However, the only one... Well, if you include Six Million Dollar Man, there were two that cracked the top 20, uh, that and Good Times. All the others would have to earn uh, an increase in the ratings over the runs of their series. Six Million Dollar Man was a a huge hit by the second season. I think it was in a top 10 consistently for the second, third, and fourth season. And then the fifth season, the ratings dropped the story quality dropped in the fifth season too. I mean, I think that's played a big part in why the ratings were starting to drop. They weren't doing the big crossovers with the Bionic Woman. The Bionic Woman had been canceled and it had been moved to NBC, so there was no cross pollination between Steve and Jamie. Oscar and Rudy were allowed to be on both shows on two different networks, which was a television first. Beyond that, the ratings really kind of dropped. But yeah, for Second and third and fourth season, it was huge, huge, big, big top 10 show. When did they bring in the Bionic Dog and the Bionic Boy? The Bionic Boy was season four of The Six Million Dollar Man. That was about Manhattan, right? Yes, it was. Yeah, it was a pseudo pilot for a series that didn't get picked up. They did another pilot for a series that season called The Ultimate Imposter about a guy who Basically, you can have his brain programmed for 24 hours with knowledge about anything. That didn't go over either. The Bionic Dog. Max. Was actually Max the Bionic Dog, yes. He got some awesome. knowledge. I, I, I want know. Million dollar man. That was over on the Bionic Woman, and that happened oh. in, uh, I. oh my gosh, season three? I don't think that was season two. Season three, hang on. I have that right in front of me here, and I can tell you that was actually, that was the season premiere two-parter in the fall of 1977 when it moved to NBC. Hmm. And he was on sporadically through the course of the season, and then when the show ended, we never heard about Max the Bionic Dog again. We can only assume that at some point Max would would have passed. I was never a big fan of Max. That was yeah. But uh, woman is. I was always huge in Six Million Man. The Bionic Woman was, you know, kind of fluctuated a little bit with that. In fact, we're only going to watch a handful of episodes from that before we dive into the reunion movies. We're going to go back and revisit that series later. But 
we've seen like the Fembot episode and the, the premiere episode. I'm going to watch a few of the episodes that have Steve making a guest appearance and we watched the Bigfoot connection. We'll watch the Fembots in Vegas, which Lindsay Wagner said is one of her most hated episodes because she had to wear a showgirl outfit and she was not a fan. And then after that, we're going to dive into the movies. So, And you're going to watch the one with Vincent Price. Oh, yes, yes. Black's, was it uh, Black's Magic? Uh, Black Magic, yes. Yeah, that was uh, episode four, season two, fall of 1976. I only know this because I have a list in front of me because I've been like checking off as I've been watching the episodes to come. Oh, don't tell everyone that. Tell them you have an encyclopedic knowledge of it. Actually, you know, the sad thing is I kind of, I, I do. <laughs> I can tell you that when I recorded the Memiverse, I had no notes, none. I knew all off the top of my head. I can forget somebody I met five minutes ago, but if you ask me about something yeah, from my childhood, I'll rattle it off. Let's take a commercial break. I know we just started. Don't you hate that? You turn on a TV show, you get all involved, and then it's commercials. But we got to do it, and then we'll come back and talk about our movie. Last potato chip. That's the best. I like them as a snack. Just put a bag down in front of me, and I'll finish them off one by one. They're just always fresh and crisp. <laughs> Invention since the napkin. Franco American. Uh oh, SpaghettiOs. Man, you never would believe where those Zesta saltines come from. They're baked by little elves in a hollow tree. And what do you think makes those crackers so uncommon? They're baked in magic ovens and there's no factory. Hey! That's gotta be a factory. I don't believe in elves. But for a tiny little factory person, you bake uncommonly good saltines. Zesta Saltines. From Keebler. Alex, I wish I could find the key to that door. Hmm. Must be around somewhere. I'll have another look. You know, this is really a terrific house. The key. You found it. Yesterday. I was going through some of my grandmother's things, and it was hidden in an envelope in her desk. Watch out, there's stairs here. As a matter of fact, the whole room's not bad at all. I thought of making it into um, some sort of office for myself. Well, why not? We could open up the shutters, pick up the paneling, lighter color, and... And break the fireplace. Well, why would anyone like to close up a lovely fireplace like that? I don't know. It's just that some things are better left as they are.
are back. It is October 10th, 1973, ABC. That was Channel 10, K-A-K-E in Wichita for me. And uh, five out of Oklahoma City for me. Don't be afraid of the dark. And yeah, there's a Star Trek reference or two here. Richard, we're talking about television movies from the early 70s. Every freaking one of them is going to have a Star Trek connection. I've got I think it, at this I've point, got you it. don't have to necessarily point them out. I have to. It, it's, um, it's an obligation because I have no Doctor Who references. But, but that's how you're going to lead. I mean, usually you'll do that in the cast or something, you know. Oh, I know. I just, I, I, I'm looking at the cast and like right there in the start of it is where I see it. So anyway, I won't say anything then for a while. No, 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 please. Let's get it out of the way. Go ahead. We we know what's most important. Well, okay. Two cast members. The main star of this is Kim Darby, plays the character of Sally Farnham. Of course, she was in the first season Star Trek episode, Miri. She was uh, also in uh, one of John Wayne's best movies from this time period, True Grit. She was also in Halloween, Curse of Michael Myers. Yeah, she didn't know that. 1980s, one of the best comedies of the 80s, Better Off Dead. She was in that. She played the goofy mother, I think, of, is it John Cusack? Yeah, I think. It's been a while since I've seen that. Jim Hutton plays her husband, Alex. Alex and Sally Farnham have inherited this house from, what is it, Sally's grandmother? Grandmother, I believe. Yes. The house has a few issues and a few (laughs) things that we learn more about it as the movie goes on. But And I want to talk about this as we kind of dive into the film. There was a remake of this movie, 2010 remake. Guillermo del Toro didn't direct it, but he produced it and and he co-wrote it. His love for this original, I remember enjoying the remake. It definitely expands on... The, the creatures and their origins and, and kind of a little bit more. Because there's definitely, and I thought there was opportunity to really expand a little bit on where these creatures came from and what are they and what do they do. Right out of the gate, I was kind of wondering, once we know that there's these creatures and we start learning more, I kind of felt like there, there should have been something more about how Sally inherited the house. Because... As we find out, there's there's things happening with this house. So she inherited it from her grandmother. What happened to the parents? Did the parents, you know, say, there's no mention of Sally's parents. A, why they wouldn't have, I guess, known about the house and why they weren't referenced and why did certain things kind of skip over her parents? And then why was Sally targeted? I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I just, those are some things that are immediately coming to mind. And so I, I when we dive into this a little more, I want to touch on that 2010 remake a little bit, because I think that some of the things they cover in that remake would have been great to have in, in this movie a little bit. To, even just a few references would have been great to expand on the movie a little bit. Yeah, let me comment on a couple of things you said. So first of all, you said there were issues in the house. Well, there's not any issue that a walled up fireplace wouldn't take care of. Well, this is true. As far as the 2010 movie, I did not enjoy that movie. And I don't know if it's limitations of the format. This was a a 74 minute movie. Maybe they didn't have time for that. Do you really want to know the origin, origin of Michael Myers? Do we care, you know, how he grew up and what caused him to be Michael Myers? You know, do we really need to know 
these creatures and what they are. I mean, they are there, they're terrifying, they wreak havoc. I mean, I'm not saying one way is good or bad. I'm just saying that could be a matter of taste on whether you think the movie provides enough details or not. I don't think you would have had to spend a lot of time. I think, honestly, a reference or two of just maybe saying, because they talk about how the house was built in the 1800s. So you're kind of left, I guess it's left up to your own imagination that maybe the house was built on, I guess, this cave or doorway or whatever to this other underworld realm where these creatures live, which is, that's why you're not afraid of the dark, folks. Spoiler alert, there's there's creatures in the midst. I mean, it's left to the assumption that that's, you know, that's how when they built the fireplace, they, they, they must have come up to the ground and... But I guess it would have been cool if they would have maybe just added a line or two saying that, I don't, I don't know, ancient Indian burial ground or something to expound that, you know, it, it records or something that show, maybe she, she goes to the library and does research and, you know, a couple of minutes to just show that Native Americans avoided this land, you know, and, and just kind of add a little something. Maybe that would have been cheesy. Maybe it would have been cliche. It would have been, I guess, maybe given something a little bit going back to they were there before the house. Yeah. And then... Well, there was I definitely... there were They referenced that they had been there forever. Yeah. And there was some type of hint that her grandmother wasn't the first person that had dealt with them. What's your history with this movie? I did not watch this on television originally. I didn't become aware of this until probably... 10 years ago, maybe a little longer, early days of podcast listening, I listened to a show called Drunken Zombie, and they would always give me suggestions for movies. And this is one that they gave me a suggestion for. Uh, Well, not just me, but in general, they would say, hey, there's a movie we watched or whatever. I found a, a VHS copy for sale, snagged the VHS copy of it. It was a fairly good copy. And in fact, my DVD is a burn from that VHS. So I, I did not see the the latest uh, Blu-ray release of it or, or even the DVD release that came before it. I think there's actually been two DVD releases before it. But my copy is pretty good. That was my exposure to it. And of course, immediately because Kim Darby and Star Trek, and then I recognized Barbara Anderson, who plays her friend Joan. She was in... Ironside. She was in the Six Million Dollar Man movie, playing the nurse that has some type of relationship with Steve. She was also in Star Trek, first season episode, Conscience of the King, playing the crazed daughter of Anton Caridian. She tries to kill Captain Kirk, plays crazy very well in that episode. So I recognized her. Of course, I recognized William Demarest as the handyman, Mr. Harris, because I'd seen every color episode of My Three Sons with Uncle Charlie numerous times back in the early days of cable TV, and just watched him recently, and it's a mad, 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 mad world. He was part of that ensemble cast. So I recognize these cast members, and as I've dived into the movie more over the years, I, I, I learned a little bit more about the director, and of course then the, the remake came out, Shortly after I got the VHS, I had the VHS maybe for a couple of years before the remake came out. And I remember seeing the remake trailer and it didn't look like anything in the movie. But then, of course, it says, don't be afraid of the dark. I'm like, I wonder if that is. And sure enough, it, you know, I realized it was a remake. And then 
you know, it was different. I, I do appreciate the original better more than the, the remake. I'm not a huge Katie Holmes fan and, you know, but I do like aspects of the remake where they kind of just expanded a little bit more on the history. I don't know that I necessarily liked where they went with it. And we'll talk about that, but I like that they gave a little bit more background to it. What's your history with it? Well, this movie is beloved. Talk to almost anyone. They know it. They think it's one of the best TV movies. I do not have any memory of seeing it when it first came on. So I either did and did not have that reaction that everyone does, or I just never saw it probably until the new movie came out. I, I remember that's when I bought the DVD and that's when I watched it. So I don't have a love for it. And uh, I mean, it's a, it's a good movie. I enjoyed it, but I just don't go gaga over it like a lot of people do. And I think it's just because I don't have that childhood attachment. You know, I have more attachment to when Michael calls than this because I remember seeing it at the time. I know this viewing is probably my third viewing of it. I watched it when I got the VHS. I watched it when I, I dubbed it onto DVD. So it's been a few years since I've seen it. I probably looked at it with a bit more of a critical eye because I was, well, I mean, Carla was pointing out because she'd ask me questions, you know, what about this? What about this? And I'm like, well, I don't have an answer for you because they don't tell you and they don't tell you. And it's like, and then that where I kind of made me think and was like, I didn't see it before. But when she started bringing these things to my attention and I started seeing some things, I'm like, yeah, again. And as I told her, much like you just told me, it's a 75 minute made for TV movie. There's only so much you can cram in 75 minutes. I think sometimes when these movies were later put on television, like in syndication, they had the 90 minute version or when they got a theatrical release that extra 15 minutes maybe sometimes fleshed the story out a little bit, depending on, you know, the footage, you know, was it really just, was it truly adding to the story or was it just fluff? This one, to the best of my knowledge, has never had an expanded version. So this is it, 70, 74, 75 minutes. I do, I, I mean, I definitely still enjoy it. I feel like the limitations that they had from a budget perspective is probably what hurts this movie the most in regards to the the creatures. They come across, I think, really well in some scenes, other scenes, not so much. And it's maybe one of those things, the less you see them, the more convincing it is. The longer they linger, the more you're like, oh, that's, 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 that's kind of cheap. It just doesn't necessarily deter from my enjoyment, but it just kind of made me take notice. The creatures are real people shot with giant props and sets, you know, to make them look small. Yeah. I think I had memories that they were really cheap and cheesy, like you said, and you see pictures from the movie and you kind of look at them and you think, oh, so I wasn't really looking forward to watching it again from that perspective, but I will say that it held up better than I remembered. And I really didn't have any problem. I mean, the movies don't be afraid of the dark. So they're in the dark most of the time. That really helps. I don't know. Now I sort of admire the the creativity that went into you know, building the giant props and the, making the costumes. Let me ask you this. How, how many of these creatures do you think there were just from the story, the way they portrayed it? Not, you know, how many did you actually count and see, but 
if you were just watching this, how many creatures? I, I had in my mind that there's like a civilization. Yes. That's, that's you know, underground or whatever, and that a few have come to the surface basically to pull Sally down to where they are, uh, which we never really understand. Again, this version doesn't really ex- explain, you know, why the, the strong connection with Sally other than maybe it's just the house and the property. And it, it doesn't really explain at the end when there's a twist that we won't talk about, I guess, you know, in case somebody hasn't seen it. But there is a, a little twist at the end that isn't really explained. It's kind of left up to your imagination. You're talking about Sally, the very end? Yeah, when Sally goes through her transformation. And you get that. You don't see it. But just by her voice, you realize, okay, something's changed. And it's a cool ending. It's a creepy ending. You kind of saw it coming. It wasn't necessarily shocking. But it was still well done, I think. Well, I thought the ending was unexpected. I mean, it's... uh... Well, I guess, yeah. I guess, yeah. I mean, it could go either way, you know. And is it going to be a happy ending? I was kind of impressed that they chose, they made the choice that they did. Yeah, I mean, they could have certainly ended it on on a everybody gets away and then it just ends with the we're still here, we're waiting or something. Maybe because this is multiple viewing, maybe that magic was gone. You know, I I can't remember how I felt the first time I watched it. I was probably shocked. I was probably like, oh, that that didn't end on a happy note. Going back for a sec, talking about the creatures, even if you do think they're cheesy and it kind of takes you out of it, that does not affect the, the impact of seeing Kim Darby with her ankles tied with rope being pulled across the floor oh. and down the steps, you know, each step, thunk, you know, thunk goes her head on a step. You don't see the creatures during that. And I think some, those are some of the best scenes uh, because you can imagine. And then again, it doesn't really matter what they look like. Think about what they're doing to her and how ho- awful and how scary that is. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's incredibly creepy. I mean, yeah, a few moments where you're kind of like chuckling a little bit, but that's not one of them. That, that's, yeah, pretty horrific, you know, and just imagining yourself in that position. And Kim Darby, for me, fluctuated at times. She wasn't necessarily a strong lead. She did seem like she was always on the verge of a nervous breakdown even before the, uh, before the, the creatures came through. She had moments where she was playing it really well. It, it was kind of like a roller coaster ride. It's like some scenes she owned and other scenes, it's like, oh, you, you could have done better there, you know? And I guess that's a reason why Kim Darby wasn't necessarily a, a, a big lead actress. I mean, she didn't have a... A necessarily a, a stellar career. She made a, a good career for herself in Hollywood, but she typically wasn't the lead. She had that promise when she was in True Grit, but I'm not sure she ever f- fulfilled that, you know, as the 70s came along. This was probably, you know, I'm looking at some of her other roles and I'm thinking this is probably one that she's the most remembered for besides Star Trek and True Grit. And to a lesser extent, better off dead. I honestly can't remember her in Halloween Curse of Michael Myers, but it's been a long time since I've seen that. I tell you, I do, I like her character. I, yeah, I agree. I don't think, I don't know. There's something about her. She looks either too young. I really couldn't imagine her being a, a, a woman married in this type of relationship. Uh, and I don't know that she's that great of an actress in this, but her character I like because her husband's a real 
butthole and oh, he's an ass yeah doesn't oh. believe her it's a little atypical how she responds it, rather than become a victim she sort of acknowledges that okay you're not going to believe me i'm going to move on and do what i need to do and i really i respected that and thought that was a little different she doesn't challenge him on it you know she doesn't let it cause a big fight or anything she just accepts that he lacks any empathy for what she's going through and she just decides to deal with it herself. So I really like that. Well, she shifts the focus to her friend Joan. It's like, okay, well, if you're not going to believe me, I'm going to try to talk to my friend Joan and didn't hold out much hope there that Joan was going to believe her. And Joan kind of wavered a little bit. I think Joan was kind of thinking she's kind of nuts. But then when she starts to experience some of the things and, and as we hit the climax of the film, it is Joan going to Sally's husband, Alex, like, no, there is something going on here and you need to open up your eyes. That's also kind of a twist because a lot of times people just, the victim is left to hang out to dry and no one believes them until it's too late. And so I, I kind of liked that character of Joan. I thought that was something a little different. Talking about Sally's husband, Alex, Jim Hutton plays her husband. And I remember I've seen him in things. He was in movies like Green Berets and Hellfighters and Major Dundee. I never really viewed him either as like an A-list actor. He plays an asshole quite well in this movie, but kind of sad though, as I kind of wondered like, well, you know, whatever happened to him, he died only six years later. He died in 1979 um, of liver cancer at the age of 45. Wasn't he in an Ellery Queen TV series? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. About the same time as this movie, I think, that lasted for not very long. I don't think maybe a season or two. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of like, I knew him and other things, but hadn't seen him in anything for so long. And sadly, there was a reason for it. What do you know about the writer, Nigel McKeon? Because I thought that the script was also pretty clever. Uh, we talked about them being in the dark. Well, she figures out if she flashes her camera, Polaroid, you know, she'll stun them or send them back or something. That seems familiar. I think we've seen that in other movies. But this might have been one of the first instances where we saw that yeah i thought that was kind of clever and obviously you have to tweak it right in, in the end because it's you know you can't do that and in, in nowadays because like so but everybody has a cell phone so you can use that light off the cell phone to do it nigel mckee i mean I, he didn't have very many credits only 10 writing credits the waltons seems like he did some episodes of the waltons beyond that i don't know much about him did you find anything no, I uh, notable to me is family. He wrote a couple episodes of that and was a producer on the series with my beloved Christy McNichol. <laughs> now, the director, I was kind of surprised when I dived into the director a little bit. John Newland, actor, writer, director. This is the same John Newland who was the host of the classic One Step Beyond TV series in the 1950s. I know that Derek has been playing a lot of those episodes over at the Monster. I'm going to screw up the name here because I keep thinking in my head, Monster Movie Kid. No, that's me. Uh, the Monster Kid Club, right? Monster Kid Movie. Club. Monster, yes. Okay, I'm sorry, Derek. Too many monster movies and kids and things. He's been playing those episodes, and, and most of those, not all, I don't think, but a lot of those are public domain. And a lot of them are really good. I mean, they're, they're kind of a precursor to the Twilight Zone. He also directed most of those episodes. And he was also... Richard, I, I have a Star Trek reference. I'm going to let you take this one. <laughs> may I have this one? You may. Uh, because I know how to read IMDb. He uh -huh. 
uh, directed an episode of Star Trek. You'll have to tell me what season it was, but Errand of Mercy. Uh, let me guess, 67, was that season two? No, season one. Darn it. Last half of season one. Yeah, big episode, actually. This was the first episode to feature the Klingons. Uh, John Kalikos plays uh, the uh, Klingon Kur, or Kor, and of course he would play that character again many years later in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. This episode was one of the very few in the first season that did not feature Dr. McCoy. And it features essentially the Federation going to war with the Klingons. It's a really cool episode. Yeah, I was kind of surprised to see that he directed that. And of course, he was involved with Thriller and Alfred Hitchcock Presents and did some work with Dr. Kildare featuring Richard Chamberlain. <laughs> wonderful actor. What a, what a you know, very prestigious name that he had. Anyway, so he certainly has a lot of cred in television as well as in the horror community, I think, with the things that he did in the sci-fi community. Behind the scenes, I mean, some good stuff going on. You have some familiar faces in front of the camera. It's a fun movie. You know, like I said, it, it has lost a little bit of its shine for me this third go around, but I think I was probably viewing it with more of a critical eye than I have in the past, and that's because Carla was asking questions. Good questions, because there was some plot holes and some things that weren't being expanded upon. As we said, I, I, a lot of that probably has to do with the, the running time, but I think... I think maybe another go through of this script and they could have added a few things that maybe would have just added a little bit more detail because I still feel like there's some background missing that would have been fun if they would have expanded on a little bit, which they ended up doing in the 2010 film in a weird kind of way. But I mean, they did in the movie that they expanded on the creatures and kind of, they were kind of like tooth fairies and, and they're, they're, they're taking teeth from their victims, essentially, to turn them into creatures like themselves, which is kind of what happens in the, in the original movie, right? I mean, they, okay, spoiler alert, I mean, they're, they're pulling people down into their, the realm and are apparently transforming them somehow. Clearly, Mr. Harris knows what these creatures are. He talks to them at one point. He's got some type of deal. They let him go. They didn't seek him out. And he's frightened of them, so he obviously knows what they are. He knows what they can do. But the, the 2010 movie just expanded on it a little bit more. And I think that's, again, because Guillermo del Toro had a love for the original and he wanted to, to make it a little bit more in-depth. They played around with some of the names I thought was kind of funny because in the 2010 movie... Sally is actually the daughter's name and Alex doesn't have, like he's separated from his wife or divorced, but he has a girlfriend, which is played by Katie Holmes. And the girlfriend's name is Kim, which was a homage to Kim Darby. Played around a little bit with that. I, I did read where Nigel McKean, he originally wanted the creatures to be quicker. He wanted them to be thinner. He wanted them to be more demonic. You got limitations, what you can do with 1973 technology by having essentially people in a suit. You can only be so thin. You can only be so, so quick. And it's made for TV. You can only be so demonic. It'd been interesting if he'd have been able to maybe have a slightly bigger budget if we would have maybe tweaked those characters to fit his vision 
we might not have some of those cheesier scenes in this movie might have some more frightening scenes. Definitely. If they were quicker and thinner and more demonic, which is really what they ended up looking like in the 2010 movie. I have one more behind this behind the scenes thing. I would like to mention the music, which I don't necessarily remember from this one, but the composer was Billy Goldenberg and he did the music for duel, which I just watched last night. That's coming up on classichorrors.club for my Friday TV terror guide. Amazing use of music in that movie, uh, which is something I had not remembered until I watched it again. The point is that Billy Goldenberg just died on August 3rd of 2020 at the age of 84. So he's got very prolific, a huge list of credits. uh, And he did the music for Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. I know this movie had a very quick production time you know, they filmed it in like about two weeks which i don't know how what the average turnaround time was in these movies but you're also only dealing with 75 minutes it doesn't leave a whole lot of room for reshoots or for multiple takes on scenes which was interesting uh before you and i started recording we talked about a podcast i'm listening to called the delta flyers which is Garrett Wong and, and Robert Duncan McNeil from Star Trek Voyager are watching Voyager one episode a week. And they talk about they didn't have time, a lot of times, to do reshoot of scenes. If it was later in the day, if they were kind of, you only have so many days to do an episode, a lot of time, like you really kind of had to get it right the first time. Very rarely would they say, okay, do it again or do it again. And with Garrett, this was his first television show. So he's talking about how it's like, this is like quick production. He said, and then, so he said some of those early episodes, he was also very inexperienced with sound looping when they would go back in and do that to correct some of his, his flubs or whatever. He says, it makes some of the scenes look a little wonky, a little weird. He says, that's just because they just didn't have time. He says, he kind of jokes about how, it's not like Brad Pitt, you know, where you get 75 takes to, to say one word. We had to get it right. And if we didn't, it was time to move on to the next thing. So he said, as we got more comfortable with the characters and stuff, he says certain things that, you know, would, would get kind of fixed. He says that's one reason why in an early run of a show, actors and actresses are oftentimes getting used to the characters and how they act a certain way or whatever. When you got a movie like this, you've really got to, you got to dive in and you got to get it right the first go round because you don't have that, that luxury to retake a lot of these scenes. I think sometimes we have to think about these, these short 75 minute movies. These people didn't have a lot of time to make some of these. I mean, two weeks, again, I don't know how, what the average turnaround time was. Clearly a movie like Duel had to have taken, you know, taken longer than that simply because there's a lot of location shots and things. Whereas this, you know, you were dealing with a handful of sets and you can, you know, work a lot quicker, I think, in a movie like this than with a movie like Duel, would had to have taken longer to make. But bigger budget, too, I'm sure. What else you got about it? Anything? You know, that's it. I, I just, I love the little thing at the end, just some of the words, some of the phrases, like, we have all the time in the world or, you know, like when they get out, we're free and they, they had this world domination plan. I mean, I, I don't know how they were going to accomplish that. It seems like that was a rather lofty goal unless, 
you know, this is just one entrance into the realm. Maybe there's entrances all over the world. Maybe this, this was a failed start of a franchise somewhere. I don't know. Maybe there's something that we can expand upon. I don't know. I can't recall if they really even touched on that in the 2010 movie or if this was just like the only way to get to, to the under realm. I don't know. Did you ever see a movie called The Gate? We yeah. always recommended it in the video store because it was, I wouldn't say kid friendly, but it wasn't a, I think it may have only been PG. And so, you know, it was a horror movie that kids would watch. I would always recommend that, you know, for families to watch. It, it reminds me of this because it had little creatures that came yes. up. There were a ton of them. And so you just made me think of that when you said that. That's a good movie. And, and what you said about the voices at the end, I, I like how the movie starts out. It's a slow zoom into the house. You hear the voices and then it's bookended at the end with a slow pull out yes. from the house and you hear the same voices. So it, yeah, this, it I mean, right from the get go. Yeah. You're hearing these creepy voices, you know, it's like, okay. Yeah. It's like, there's no, there's no slow buildup. You've got the demonic voices right out of the gate, which is a good, great start. Great start. Sounds like we both would recommend this. I don't know that mine's really a strong recommendation just because I'm missing that childhood attachment to it, but it's pretty good for what it attempts to accomplish. I think go, go in with lower expectations and you'll enjoy it. And I think that's the thing. I know a lot of people talk about it, hype it up, lower your expectations a little bit and I think you'll enjoy it. It's readily available. I don't know if this is on YouTube. I don't think that it is because Warner Archives is pretty good about making sure that stuff gets pulled if they have a release. They did a couple DVD releases and now it's available on Blu-ray, which I can't imagine that it would look any better than it would on Blu-ray right now. I mean, that's it's a TV movie, so that's probably the best you're going to get and it's relatively cheap. It's a movie that I seriously considered ordering on Blu-ray before we watched it and uh, I, I restrained myself. I think that if, if you haven't got it, that's the way to go. Yeah, I don't think this is a movie that you want to see those creatures in high definition. And the murkier, the darker it is, I think, the better. I agree. This is Steve Sullivan checking in. Don't be afraid of the dark. It scared me to pieces when I was a little kid, and it scared me again as an adult. It's, it's kind of amazing. I know they've done at least two DVD versions of it, and then a Blu-ray, which I don't have the Blu-ray, but uh, the DVD versions, it's, the first one was good, and the second one uh, really amped it up and made the colors really bright and stuff, so I need to watch it again sometime soon. There's a child that the, the whole thing terrified me. It's a great story. I don't remember who wrote it. Maybe I should look it up and see if it originally was a short story, but the, it's haunted me ever since. Hey guys, it's Jonathan. So you're going to try to uh, do two episodes in September, and I love that the first one you're tackling some made-for-TV horror films. I mean, as you know, any any you know horror horror fans and monster kids, especially ones that enjoy the either class, the films coming a little later in the 70s and 1970s were filled with great made-for-TV uh, horror movies. For me, the ones that stick out the most would probably be Gargoyles, uh, Salem's Lot. And absolutely, don't be afraid of the dark. The other one you mentioned, when Michael calls, I don't believe I've seen. The title sounds vaguely familiar, but I haven't seen that one. I'll be interested to hear what you guys have to say and see if it's worth following up on. Some of the other ones, Trilogy of Terror, I know is very popular. I only have vague memories of that. I don't think that played as regularly when I was a kid. But circling back to Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, ugh, such... 
such a great little film. Um, it was a big part of my childhood. It came out in 73. I probably first watched it. You know, I was born in 72. I probably started to pick it up in the late 79 and then the early 80s and then I played pretty regularly. I don't think it only played during Halloween, but it is such a great film to kind of kick off the Halloween season. Great atmosphere, great little eerie score, and Kim Darby is wonderful as the, uh, well, the victim, basically. <laughs> you know, she put that part perfectly. And the poor thing, I remember feeling so uh, bad for her as no one would believe her. And yeah, so Kim Darby always felt so bad, <laughs> so bad for her. Um, as these nasty little little demon raisin headed creatures <laughs> would pop up. I remember uh one scene at the dinner party when one of them peeks through the plant and um the other one was pulling her napkin. Oh very, very uh very creepy and very effective. So uh I the only thing I remember Kim Darby is from is uh playing the mom in Better Off Dead. And I know she's in um the original True Grit, which I haven't seen. I do love the remake though. Anyway Pretty much all around. I mean, it's just solid. I think it holds up pretty well. Some great, simple, but great special effects. I thought the, you know, forced perspective and what they did with the scaling with these little creatures um, as they made their way around this giant, creepy mansion was really effective. They kept, they kept things very dark, which obviously lent itself not just to the atmosphere, but for maybe covering up any imperfections. But... Uh, yeah, the film truly creeped me out as a kid. I remember when I'd go to bed after watching it, I would, this is when I was little, little, not when I was, you know, 13 or 14, but <laughs> when I was younger, I'm running to the bed and jumping so I wouldn't have to step close to the edge of the bed or the bottom of the bed where something could come out and grab me. I was creeped out either that either these little, little buggers would get me or the clown in Poltergeist would grab me and pull me under so <laughs> so it did what it needed to do don't uh, know jim hutton who plays the semi jerky not to be too judgy a uh, husband <laughs> i think i've seen him in other things but nothing comes to mind right now the um blanking on the rest of the cast but yeah like i said great movie to kick off the halloween season wonderful atmosphere uh that opening shot of the mansion and that eerie score and the trees blowing in the wind all made quite an impression on me. I know there was a remake, which I actually, yes, I saw the remake. Uh, not bad, but not, not necessarily a necessary remake. Probably worth seeing, but I think the, the original is where it's at. So, still glad you guys are covering it, and I'm really curious what your experience of this film uh, was. And now I'm looking at, I just pulled up IMDb. It looks like it was released in October of 73. So just in time for the Halloween season back, way back when. All right, I'm going to slide the 73 issue of TV Guide to the side and pull out the 74 fall preview. There were more new shows of note this season than any of the other three years that we've talked about. So I'm just going to run through this list really quick. ABC was, uh, I would say, the top for this season with its new shows. Beretta, Barney Miller, Get Christy Love, Harry O, Kolchak the Night Stalker. It became a series in 1974. Also, Paper Moon, great, great movie. Love it. And it was a short-lived TV series. It wasn't too bad. I remember watching that. SWAT also was on ABC. 
CBS had the Jeffersons, Rhoda, two spinoffs, and Planet of the Apes, Friday Nights, loved that, only lasted a season. Then NBC had some big ones, Chico and the Man, Little House on the Prairie, Police Woman, and The Rockford Files. So this was a jam-packed fall season of shows. And interestingly, huh, I wonder if I failed to check top 10 because I don't show that any of these were in the top 10. That seems unusual. That might not be a, a fact. Fairly certain that Night Stalker or Planet of the Apes was not in the top 10. <laughs> That's so. true. That's true. They debuted on the same night, actually, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Um, Friday the 13th, I believe. I had a few other things to add. Um, yes, please. A few things that came to an end, I guess, in the spring of 74. March 18th, the last episode of Here's Lucy, which ended Lucille Ball's 23 consecutive years on television with I Love Lucy and then the Lucy Desi Comedy Hour and then the various incarnations of the Lucy show. Here's Lucy was kind of where it ended. She wouldn't be back again with a half-hour sitcom until I think it was the 80s when she had a very, very short-lived another attempt at a Lucy show. And Gail Gordon was right there with her, but didn't work. The Dean Martin show ended its run on April 5th, 1974, after 264 episodes. I, I just never imagined that there's that many episodes out there, but and I don't even know if they all exist. I, I've got some Christmas ones that I always tend to uh, play at Christmas time. When that ended, uh, and I'm not sure if it was at some point in the fall or the spring of 75, but it, it morphed into the Dean Martin Celebrity Roast, hmm. which I remember watching that as a kid. On Saturday mornings, uh, September 7th, two shows debuted. Shazam debuted over at CBS, and Land of the Lost debuted on NBC. And I love the heck out of that show. I still do. I don't care how cheesy it is. I, the Slee Stacks, that was the coolest thing. I have a fond memory of trying to convince my dad that the Slee Stacks were cool and he finally said, wake me up the next time you see him. And so one Saturday morning, I knew the Slee Stacks were on. I remember waking my dad up so he could see the Slee Stacks on a, on a Saturday morning. The fall, October 6th, I think it's Channel 13, K-E-R-A, PBS television in Dallas, was the first U.S. television station to air Money Python's Flying Circus. Not an American show, but a BBC classic in one of the all-time great comedy shows. Late night, Friday night, if you had NBC TV, you were watching Midnight Special after The Tonight Show. Aerosmith was one of the guests this television season with their hit song, Dream On. Mm. And let's see here. July 4th, the summer of 1974, when there probably wasn't anything new being played on TV, the first CBS Bicentennial Minute aired. And this would last until 1976. So we got, I remember those bicentennial minutes mm -hmm. uh, giving the history of our, of our country that lasted for two years and it started in the summer of 74. And that's all I have to say about that. All right. Well then let's take a commercial break and come back and talk about our second movie. Where have all the people gone? 
I'm making the same great-tasting stuffing in a pan that I used to make inside chickens. In a pan? Have you lost your bird? I'm using Uncle Ben's stuff and such. It can't be that delicious. It is, because Uncle Ben's makes it with the same delicious ingredients I used. Come on, you need me. No, I don't. And I can serve stuff and such as a side dish with everything. Even chicken? Even chicken. Ah. Things are really cooking at Uncle Ben's. A Play-Doh man, a cat, a dog, a funny crocodile, a hobby horse, a yellow frog, a monkey with a smile, a cuckoo bird, an apple tree, a willy walrus, a moo cow, a bumblebee, a platypotamus, an elephant, a ball, a house, a polka dot giraffe, an aeroplane, a ship, a mouse, a face to make you laugh. Play-Doh, Play-Doh, you can make it with Play-Doh. Mm. Every Play-Doh four-pack has four blendable colors. Play-Doh, from the Play-Doh people. Aspirin's fine for headaches, even for women's discomforts. But these are the days for pamperin, when you can really be thrown off by water buildup. You know the bloat, the weight gain, swelling, puffiness, body aches. Pamperin helps relieve these symptoms because pamperin is made to relieve these symptoms. For temporary water weight gain, aspirin just doesn't work like pamperin. An original motion picture produced especially for the movie of the week. Tonight on the movie of the week. Welcome back. Richard, you set very high expectations for this movie. Where have all the people gone? October 8th, 1974. It was one that you fondly remembered and I look so much forward to watching it. Before I state my opinion, and you don't need to hide, that's perfectly fine, great concept. It's a Sunday afternoon, the Anders family is gone on vacation. What they like to do on vacation is dig for fossils. So they're out in the the California hills in a cave when an event occurs. There's a bright flash of light and then an earthquake. They are apparently protected from this event because they were in the cave. However, almost everyone else, everyone at that point that we know of, has disappeared. In place of their bodies is white powder and empty clothing. So very creepy. And and like I say, a great concept. Where have all the people gone? Tell us, Richard, what, what was your attachment to this movie and how did you feel after watching it? Okay, so pure nostalgia for me. I actually remember watching this on television in 1974. And I remember the ending, the final scene. And for many years, I, I was trying to remember. I never saw it again on television. I was trying to remember the name of the movie. I couldn't remember that Peter Graves was in it. So even after we had IMDb, I was like trying to put in the plot. I could never find it. And it wasn't until, again, I, I almost want to say it was the Drunken Zombie podcast. They mentioned this movie, and I'm like, oh, that sounds like the movie. And I went on IMDb and pulled it up. I was like, this has to be it. And got a VHS copy of it. 
And sure enough, this was the movie that I remember from as a kid. Much like with Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, this is my third time viewing it in the last 10, 11 years, give or take. Watched it on VHS, dubbed it on DVD, and watched it again now. The nostalgic glow has has, uh, (laughs) rusted over a little bit. I enjoyed the premise of this movie but sadly it is it is lacking in in some areas some of it is in a weaker script some of it is the cast the supporting cast and maybe some of it is the copy i mean this this is a harder film to find although it is on youtube it's never been given a commercial release so a decent copy of this has never been officially released. The, the VHS releases were either bootleg or were low-budget VHS companies, even like what Amazon Prime has. I mean, it's out there. I mean, again, you, you don't have to pay anything to see this movie. The Amazon Prime video actually is a lesser print than what mine is. And mine was, you know, obviously a copy of a film. Maybe... Somewhere, if we get a nice, glossy, high-definition, expanded, hour-and-a-half, special director's cut edition, maybe there would be more here. But as it is, 75 minutes long, it plays off very much as a pilot, I think, for a potential series. Which it was, right? No, it never was a series. I know, but it was a pilot, right, that wasn't picked up? I don't know that it was intended to be a pilot. I think that it was. It was. I think I read. I it. think I think it was made to be a pilot, and then it ended up not getting picked up. So, I mean, by the time it aired, was they were they still hoping it was a pilot, or were they just like, well, it's let's air it. It didn't get passed, so let's just see, you know, because a lot of TV shows did start with ninety-minute movies back in the day. Oh. Rookie was a ninety-minute movie. T.J. Hooker was a ninety-minute movie. Starsky and Hutch was a ninety-minute movie. But it wasn't picked up. I think there was some cool potential. But because of its sci-fi theme and stuff, that wasn't really popular in the 1970s. Whereas I think if if this would have been done maybe a little bit later, say the 90s when we were doing first-run syndicated shows, and it seemed like there was a lot of stuff being cranked out for UHF stations, probably would have been greenlit then. Something like this now would, would probably get a Netflix run or, you know, the gazillion different streaming options we have out there. Might not get more than a season or two, but it would probably get picked up now. At the time, though, no one was interested. And maybe with re- good reason, there, there was some weakness to the, to the movie. So did I still enjoy it? Yes. Should I not have hyped it up as much? Probably. I still enjoyed aspects of it. I like yeah, the such a great concept. I was just, I didn't like the execution of it. it. It was very, even within its own time frame, was very episodic. You know, they're traveling from here to there. They meet someone here, someone there. It, it reminded me, we mentioned Planet of the Apes. It reminded me a lot of that. Had it been a series, I'm sure it would have been every week they travel somewhere, meet someone else yeah. or, or find some of their part. So that was kind of, that was very standard. I, I wish they had taken the concept and you know done something more with it, more self-contained without sort of the uplifting, open-ended 
ending. I was just disappointed in that. But, you know, it's not bad. I mean, for, for what it does, it's okay. Some of the decisions were a little, I don't know, I go back and forth. The fact that their scientific resource for what's going on is, you know, the college student son, and he's a, a physics major, and they rely so heavily on him to tell them, you know, what's going on. I get it. That's all they have is themselves, the family, and he is their authority. But I got tired of them asking him what was going on as if he well, and you know. didn't help when he started having little temper tantrums along the way. And I'm like, wow, that's that's who your scientific expert is. You're screwed. Okay, so you know that this was the movie that Carla's head exploded when it came yeah. to the to the science behind it because She's like, sunspots can't do that. And why would there be an earthquake? It was funny. I, it was just, I knew as this was going on, I was like, oh, here we go. Three, two, one. <laughs> yeah. And she was right. I mean, the, the science binded, thrown out the window. You just kind of have to dive in and say, okay, I'm going to accept this. There's probably not an ounce of scientific truth in any of this, but we're just going to go with it. That's the only thing you can do in a movie like this. There, there is that idea right at, at the end of, of the movie that the mother, you know, was a scientist and they acknowledged that there was, they were working on a cure and they were close, but I don't know if that would have played into the show though. I mean, because pretty much what happened and trying to rebuild society, I mean, anyone who would have contracted it, presumably it already bit the dust as it were. I don't know if they would have picked up on that or not, but I mean, they definitely throw it out at the end. So maybe, I mean, they certainly open up that maybe something happened, maybe another, maybe there would be another sunspot or something. And maybe, maybe the, the cure would have been something that they would have picked up if the show would have gone. Probably the show would have dealt with the settlement of the week as they travel from point A to point B and run across this people. And there probably would have been good people and then there would have been a bad person or bad people and a good person to help them. It would have been formulaic, which well, admittedly- like I say, even the movie itself was first they meet the girl who's catatonic. Then they meet the little boy whose parents were killed. And by the way, did they, I don't remember. And I'll tell you why in a minute. It's kind of funny. Did they figure out why other people had survived? I don't remember. Well, so that's that. So, Again, there's logic things are kind of thrown out the window because they never really explain why some people survived and some people didn't. At first, because I, I originally remembered it while well, they were in the cave and so they, did, they weren't exposed, right. but other people were exposed. And they, they themselves got exposed to an aftershock of sorts. Right. So there was something, some uh, built-in immune, you know, immunity to these magical sunspots. They took a picture and there was radiation in the picture and they never really picked up on that either. It's like, okay, so then you're all irradiated. Food's okay. So, so the what the radiation was there and it went away. I mean, what happened to the radiation? They did of course touch on the electromagnetic pulse, which is kind of cool. They, they kind of did explain that a little bit, you know, in regards to why the car was working and not working and, it was the type of cars and we're, you know, they kind of gave this pseudo explanation. Yeah, the cars had to be running when it happened to 
Yeah, yeah. Dogs have gone crazy. The cats apparently have gone <laughs> crazy, but the horses were okay. And that was a question. Carl's like, why, why did the horses not go nuts, but the dogs did and the, and the cats did? And of course, she didn't like that part as it was anyway. It's a good point. It's like where some of the animals, that could be, that would have certainly lent itself to an interesting scene. If you had crazy birds everywhere, that would have been frightening as all hell. Why some animals and not other, why some people not others? Again, I guess it's this built-in immunity that you just kind of have to take for granted that's there, but they don't really ex- expand on it very much, unfortunately. And the reason I asked is because... <laughs> Last night I watched Robot Monster and believe it or not, I had never seen that. And I wanted something short. I was really tired. It was only an hour. It was in my Amazon Prime list. Anyway, the uh, five to eight survivors in that story were immune to the death ray because of the serum that they had been testing. So I guess I might've confused that a little bit with this and was wondering why there were survivors in this, but no serum testing that we know of in this. Now I've got the robot monster in my head. It's like, you know, I must not, but I must, but I must not, but I can, but I will, but I won't. (laughs) And that's the biggest failing for me in this movie is just that they have such a cool way of uh, a cool visual of the people that have disappeared. There's the white powder left with the clothing, but they only a couple of times run across clothing. You would think that there would be, you know, go buy a playground and show clothing everywhere with white powder. That would have been so creepy. Yeah. Um, So I was, I was a little disappointed that, you know, we only saw a little bit of that. However, they did counter that because when they get to LA and, and they're in a car, they're driving down the ghost town-like streets and they, they hear the voices of the people that had been there. To hear that and then see them be so desolate was very yes. So I'll give them credit for that. Well, it was interesting. Star Trek had, had already done something similar to this. Second season episode called The Omega Glory where there was a disease that, they brought back to the USS Exeter, and when the Enterprise finds the ship, the entire crew is gone, and they've all been turned to dust. The handful of chemicals, when you take away the water, that's all supposedly that we really are, is just a few pounds of dust or dirt or whatever. So there was immediate similarities to that, but the difference being is that the starship had dead bodies everywhere. Why didn't we see more of that? It's not like it would have cost a lot of money. Get some clothes and some white powder and you're good to go. I, I think that some of these deficiencies have, I mean, you got to, you can't excuse it so much as like, well, they only had 75 minutes. No, they had a lot of time to do more than what they did. So I think you have to throw it on the writers. And Sandor Stern, who was mostly a TV writer, did stuff like Mod Squad and Ironside but did do the Amityville Horror. Did write the screenplay for that. Louis John Carlino, his big claim to fame was the great Santini. They obviously could write. I don't know why if they just just thought, well, you know, no one's really going to notice. This is just a 75-minute sci-fi fluff movie and no one's going to pick it apart. They really didn't know their audience because their audience is more than likely then a regular audience is going to sit there and pick apart little stuff like that. It's like, yes, but why? But why? 
maybe in the 1970s, things were a bit more forgiving than we are now. And things are a little more detailed in, in the shows that we watch. Maybe 1970s audiences were a little more forgiving. I know as a kid, you know, I, I can't remember asking any of those questions. When I first watched it, the nostalgia kind of overshadowed any questions that I had. And I can't honestly remember asking any of those questions a second time. This time, I immediately was thinking these things before Carla's head was exploding and then asking the questions. And I'm like, well, I was thinking that too. And I don't know. Yeah. Other than, you know, I think there was just some missed opportunities here to expand and, and fill in some of the, the, the plot holes a little well, bit more. And to be fair, these are our expectations and our questions, but really this kind of just wants to be a family drama. I mean, they are, you know, their goal is to find their mother, uh, his wife, to see if she has still survived. And so from beginning to end, they are trying to get to their home to see. So it kind of, and with the son's breakdowns and his relationship with his sister, it kind of is focusing more on the family drama. And so that's just a personal preference. If well, you'd prefer to see powder and clothes, uh, it, it kind of chooses not really to focus on that and yes. to focus on the family drama. And I think we really need to put ourselves in, in 1974 mentality is that television back then was a lot simpler than it is now. And it was a lot less detailed. Think of all the shows where you had the, the the crime dramas, you know, the bad guy of the week. I, there was no motivation half the time. I mean, for the most of the bad guys back then, they were just bad. Watching the $6 million man, there was basic plots, right? This guy used to work for OSI. He gets fired. Now I'm going to ruin OSI and destroy the world. And I'm going to, you know, seek out this technology because I worked on it once and they stole it from me. I mean, that, it, it, it comes up repeatedly. There's certain scripts that kind of get replayed, and it was the same for crime dramas. It was the same for, for comedy shows. It was a simpler time, and television was simpler. And so these movies are, by nature, they're simpler as well. And so I think it helps when you go into these movies, lower expectations a little bit, and enjoy it for what it is. It's a 75-minute snapshot of a much simpler time, and I don't know, there's a part of me that wouldn't mind going back to those simpler times and having only three or four stations to choose from. It seemed to me you could always find something to watch. Isn't always the case now, unless you have a library like you or I do, but I don't know watching standard television. Now it's, it's kind of mind numbing with just the amount of stations we have. And it's like, there's nothing on, but you could always find something on television back in the in the seventies or eighties, back in in that when we grew up, it seemed like there was always something on. You want to take us through the cast? Peter Graves heads up the cast as Stephen Anders, of course, best known as Jim Phelps from Mission Impossible. Definitely some sci-fi cred. He's in movies like Red Planet Mars, Killers from Space, It Conquered the World, Beginning and the End. I had to laugh though when <laughs> he was talking to to the boy Michael. And I just immediately went into airplane mode and heard in my head, you know, well, Michael, have you ever seen a grown man naked? I just, his voice <laughs> and that conversation made me laugh. I, I love Peter Graves, always have. Maybe not an A-list actor, but it seems like he always entertains me in whatever he's in. It's great. 
His son, David Anders, played by George O'Hanlon Jr., not a list actor. No, not in any way, shape, or form. He was in the original Halloween. I can't remember the character that he played, but he was credited for being in Halloween. And he was actually in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, an episode called Future Imperfect. He played a transporter chief. Didn't even get a name. His career didn't do much after after uh, this movie. It, it kind of, parts were kind of far and few between for him. Definitely more of a character and supporting actor. Kathleen Quinlan plays sister Deborah Anders, of course, well familiar for kind of being in lots of different TV roles back then. Twilight Zone, the movie, Apollo 13, Warning Sign, the 2006 version of The Hills Have Eyes. I don't think I've ever seen that remake all the way through and i can't honestly remember what character she played in it but she was in it the character of jenny the catatonic girl was played by verna bloom known for her role in such films as high plains drifter and animal house young waiver lad michael played by michael james wickstead didn't do a whole lot did some tv work left acting in 1977 at the age of 16 and kind of fell off the face of the earth, but we assume he's doing well. Mother Barbara Anders was played by actress Jay McIntosh. Lots of TV work, episodes of uh, Jim Clancy, who I believe was the, was the guy that stayed with the Anders family and who ends up dying a rather slow, painful death. Played by actor Noble Willingham, was in, I believe, the entire run of Walker, Texas Ranger, uh, character actor. Also in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, I believe a second season episode called The Royale. And he played a, uh, a big Texas gambler in this weird scenario that was in that episode. Now, I think probably the besides Peter Graves, the one who gets the most recognition is the director, John Llewellyn Moxie. We've talked about him many times. Yes, we have. Yes. 1960 classic film, The City of the Dead, better known as Horror Hotel with uh, Christopher Lee, Psycho Circus, episodes of The Avengers, The Saint, The House That Would Not Die, A Taste of Evil, The Night Stalker. Uh, We will probably talk about him again in a few months down the road when we do Genesis 2. We just lost him last year. Died at the age of 94. He had a long and I think well-accomplished life. Besides Peter Graves, I think probably the two best known behind the scenes or behind the camera for this film. I had to look up George O'Hanlon Jr. to see who he was in Halloween. He was uncredited, but he was Michael Myers' father. So he would have been there only at the beginning when the parents came home and and Michael's standing out there in his clown costume with the knife. That's interesting. It was only like four years later. Yeah, he was been a young father. Would have been a young father. Maybe that's part of the problem with Michael. His father was too young. <laughs> Might be. And, and yeah, imagine if it's David Anders as his father. It's like, God, <laughs> little whiner. <laughs> anyway, I did enjoy the movie. Not as much as I had in the past, but I, I did enjoy it. I think if I had gone in, maybe I will watch this again because it is much like with Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. I would watch it again. Quite frankly, I'd watch all four of these movies that we've talked about again. I really enjoyed all four of them. But I would definitely rewatch the last two, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark and Where Have All the People Gone, despite their deficiencies. 
I have a connection with both films, especially this one. I would just go in, I think, next time, knowing low expectations. I just want 75 minutes of some nostalgic fun, and it'll deliver on that point. Yeah, I absolutely think you should watch it again, because I know what that connection's like with something from your childhood and revisiting it. So now that that's out of the way, watch it again. I bet you'll enjoy it more. I would definitely pick up a good copy of this if it was ever made available. And you never know. I mean, you know, a lot of uh, made-for-TV movies are getting released these days. Maybe this one might. You never know. Or it might remain buried. It is out there, as I said, on Amazon Prime. If you have that, I believe there's a decent copy of it on YouTube as well. So you don't have to look too far. You don't have to pay anything for it. That's always the best way to see something if you can... Get it for free. It is readily out there. And we just have to wait for someday for maybe to get an official release. For now, watch it for free. I do recommend it. I think I liked these movies the order that we talked about them. So first of all, When Michael Calls, Devil's Daughter, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, and then this one. I think those top three could juggle around depending on the day. But I I think I, I really liked all three of those. And then... Where have all the people gone? I have to agree. I think that's that's a pretty good order. I mean, when Michael Calls surprised me for, for being a first-time viewing, I really enjoyed it. Devil's Daughter, again, a film I'd never heard of before, needs to get more recognition than I think that it, get, that it uh, gets. You know, and then, yeah, a little on the lesser side, but still entertaining. Don't Be Afraid of the Dark and, and uh, Where Have All the People Gone, which didn't have a question mark. When they did the the title card, it's like they didn't put the question mark. They forgot to put it, but sometimes it's listed, sometimes it's not. Hmm. Nitpick. (laughs) Nitpick. Anyway, I enjoyed all four films. This has been fun, and we've really only – tip of the iceberg, and you're covering so many made-for-TV movies. Why don't you, you know, just expand about that a little bit, this journey that you're on to make your way through all 75,000 made for TV movies. Yeah, um, I don't know. I've just, oh, I don't know so many of them. I, I remember seeing and I want to rewatch them. And I thought I would just start going through. I needed something for my Friday TV terror guide column. So I'm doing it. And I did not mention last time that I'm using this book. It's called Television Fright Films of the 70s by David Deal. Uh, this is from McFarland. Um, I've got the paperback, so it probably wasn't as expensive. I'm actually not using the reviews much for content because they are pretty much reviews, not a lot of facts about the movies or the making of them. But they do have a great chronological list that I have been following. It's a lot of fun. I Most of these movies are well worth the time. Great little, great memories. Uh, and some reminders of things I'd forgotten. So I, I've really been enjoying that. And you're up to a 1972? I'm about to go, let's see, Duel will be Friday. Um, so I'm at the end of that year. Yeah, 71. So I'm at the end of 71. I started in okay. 70. I actually want to flash back and do, because the first one that you could sort of categorize with this was in 69. I cannot find it to watch, but one of the first ones I wrote about was a sequel to that movie. Hopefully during this, the course of this, that movie will be available and I'll flashback and do that. I enjoy reading the series. I mean, some of these movies I'm familiar with, some of them, like the one with Barbara Eden and Larry Hagman, I did not realize they did a movie so close 
after I Dream of Genius. So it's kind of fun to to read about your thoughts on these movies and discovering some films that I've never heard of before. So and I know there's a lot of a lot of good ones out there, a lot of pseudo pilots for movie for TV shows that ever happened. There's a lot of stinkers along the way. And sometimes movies that we forgot were made for TV movies, like Night Gallery, for example. I mean, that was a made-for-TV anthology movie in 69 that then spawned the series. It's just kind of funny. I think in the midst of my $6 million man stuff, I'm going to go back and re-watch the first three pilot movies. But when they were re-edited into two-part episodes for syndication, mm. there was extra footage added to them sometimes footage that had no business being in the episodes. They had to, like in, in the original, I think it, I think it's in the first movie, they rename it The Moon in the Desert, it's a two-part story, and to kind of add some extra scenes, I think Martin E. Brooks pops up as Rudy Wells at a few background scenes, and there's a scene where like they're showing Steve on the moon, but it's actually from the fifth season episode called Dark Side of the Moon, it's pretty obvious when you see Steve's head in the helmet. And it's like he's got the curly late 70s do. They did their best. And I remember the recaps were like five minutes long to try to fill in the time. But uh, I think I'm going to go back. I haven't seen those versions in quite a few years because the TV movies were not available and were not seen until they put them out on the big box set, which was Ooh. about... Gosh, I don't know when that was, seven, eight years ago when that big box set came out. I, uh, I think I'll go back and revisit and, and see that just to kind of compare and contrast, which is always fun. Yeah. Well, if this, these episodes are a hit, maybe next fall we can take the next chunk of four years and, and talk about TV movies. But for now, why don't we fast forward to the future or the present? Let's take a quick break. Um, we'll come back and wrap up with our regular features and uh, talk about what's coming next. Hey, Snoopy, wake up. It's time to brush our teeth. Good grief, it's time to brush your teeth with your Snoopy toothbrush. Brushing right makes you smile bright with your Snoopy toothbrush. Snoopy makes you want to brush your teeth. Good grief, it's time to brush your teeth. It's fun to brush your teeth. Snoopy. Happiness is a battery-operated Snoopy toothbrush by Kenner. Welcome back. It's time for new business. We're back in the present. Let's talk about some releases that are coming out on home video in September. Some of these will already be out, and some of these will be coming out. On September 1st, Perfect Strangers from 1984. I mention that only because Larry Cohen directed that, and that's available from Vinegar Syndrome. On the 8th, we have another configuration of Alfred Hitchcock movies. This set is called the Alfred Hitchcock Classics Collection, and it does have arguably his biggest classics, Rear Window, Vertigo, Psycho, and The Birds. That's from Universal Pictures Home Video. If you don't have any of those movies, that would be a great set to, to get. And you're Mr. Hitchcock. Would you concur? Yes, I would agree. Those, If you're going to start, that's a great place to start. I've got a big box set that's got a ton of stuff on there and it seems like they've never done a set that has all of those same movies and it's just always I'm like ah, I'd love to upgrade to Blu-ray but then I wouldn't get this and I wouldn't get that so I've always just been happy with what I've got but if you're starting off perfect way to go 
Also on the 8th from Kino Lorber, we have Doctor Who and the Daleks and Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD from 1965-66 with Peter Cushing as Doctor Who. We did a whole episode devoted to that. On the 15th, we have the David Cronenberg classic Shivers from 1975. Not sure what label that is. It's on the box Vestron video, and I know that they were bringing out these VHS classics under a Vestron video label, but that's either Lionsgate or Artisan. I'm not sure who's putting that out, but nevertheless, Shivers on Blu-ray. And from Kino Lorber, The Ghost Breakers from 1940. Then on the 22nd, it seems like we mention this every episode, but the Inner Sanctum Mysteries, that box set is finally coming out with the uh, Lon Chaney Inner Sanctum movies and the Vincent Price collection from Shout Factory. This is a new version, I guess, of the sold out collection one. Uh, it has Pit in the Pendulum, Abominable Dr. Fives, Haunted Palace, Follow the House of Usher, and Mask of the Red Death, and Witchfinder General. September birthdays, just a couple, couple of note. September 10th, 1914, Robert Wise. I'll mention him for you because he directed Star Trek, the motion picture. However, also directed The Haunting, which is also a September anniversary that came out September 18th of 1963. And then Fay Ray, September 15th, 1907. We, of course, did an episode devoted to her. Other September anniversaries, Psycho, September 8th, 1960. The Blob, September 12th, 1958. We already mentioned Kolchak the Night Stalker debuted in September of 74. How Awful About Alan was another TV movie from 1970 with Anthony Perkins. That came out September 22nd. And then Moon of the Wolf, September 26, 1972. Another TV movie that is one with some nostalgic memories that I'm looking forward to revisiting. I've never seen that one, but that pops up occasionally on public domain sets and I may even have that in a big box set of like a hundred horror films. Have you, you've seen that one though. You said you have some nostalgic. Yeah. I have not seen it uh, in my adult life, but I have some childhood memories of that one. Richard, what's up? What are you doing outside of the classic horrors club podcast? I have reviewed some films for dread media that are uh, of a more modern variety. A couple of the reviews have Probably out by the time you hear this, they should already be uh, out there. One was for Victor Crowley, the fourth film in the Hatchet series. Another was for the truly horrific Hogzilla. A couple more that I actually still have to record as you and I are recording this, but I'm going to do that this weekend. It should be out, I'm assuming, sometime in September. Scare Package, which was a great anthology those three films were all on Joe Bob and a film that I discovered on Shudder, which I highly recommend called Monstrum from 2018, which is a South Korean horror flick that's kind of set in feudal South Korea. It's a really interesting movie. I, I really enjoyed that. As I talked about in the September episode of the Memoverse monthly audio cast, talked about the $6 million man movies over at the blogs, caseycinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. Wrapping up my summer with Stan and Ollie, not horror related, but wrapping up our, our journey through the Laurel and Hardy films, which has been so much fun. A little bit of uh, lightheartedness and in, in a sometimes uh, 
somewhat gloomy 2020. It's been a lot of fun revisiting some of these films that I haven't seen for a long time and sharing them with Carla for the first time. So we're wrapping that up by the end of September and then gearing up for the 31 days of Halloween. This year, a little different. I decided not to do movies because I kind of just want to watch what I want to watch in, in October. And so uh, going to be doing 31 days of old time radio. There are some really good horror stories from the golden age of radio from the 30s and 40s, especially some from the 50s as well. And so I'm going to be sharing one of those a day. All of them will be available on YouTube. Some good stuff that some of you have probably heard of. Some of you probably never heard of some of these. So that's going to be something fun and different for uh, the 31 days of Halloween. I think that's, that's about what I'm doing. What about you? Well, you already granted me time to plug the website. So I appreciate that. I think I mentioned last time I had a lot of writing deadlines and our friends over in England at the We Belong Dead group. I won't rehash all that, but I do have some exciting news. I'm going to have an article in Scary Monsters. So someone in the United States actually wanted to publish something. I'm excited about that. I can't wait. That may be out by the time this is airing. So it's a comparison of the book, The Conjure Wife, and the movie that was made of that, Burn Witch Burn. Kind of excited about that. Well, that is very cool. I I love Scary Monsters. I I re-upped my subscription. You know, I I made a purchase from Scary Monsters about two months ago. I ordered some back issues of The Creeps. They, you know, don't bend all this stuff. I don't know. It went through some shredder uh, at the post office. The magazines were intact, but were not in mint condition in any way, shape, or form. And you know me, I, I always like things in bags and boards and I mean, there was nobody to complain to. I certainly wasn't going to go to them. It wasn't their fault. And I know they're hurting like so many other businesses are because they lost a lot of revenue this year by not having their magazines on the shelf. It was the post office fault. And of course, they, you know, are their own breed of problems right now. So I was a little disappointed. I'm hoping that usually their their magazines come in, uh, in some better packaging. So this one was a Fairly flimsy package, and I think that's why Hmm. I got chewed up. Uh, I'm looking forward to the next issue of Scary Monsters, though, which is coming out, is it October, I think? No, I think it's coming out in September. Is it September? Okay. It's It's been a while. I know I don't know. I mean, subscribers get it a certain time, and then I think it'll be on stands then later in October or November. I know their spring issue was delayed by several months because of the pandemic, but then it got, like, it did get out, but it was only limited, and then it got out again when bookstores started reopening. So I know their schedule has been a little off this year, but congratulations. That is awesome. Thank you, you. You, I mean, you've already had some great stuff through We Belong Dead. Scary Monsters is just another feather in your cap, which I know sometimes you, you don't toot your own horn enough. So uh, I'm, I'm proud of you for joining the Scary Monsters family. A lot of great people have written for that. I know what Steve Sullivan has. I think uh, Derek has before. Of course, we know Dr. Gang Green, and I'm sure I know that we're missing people. So I know that a lot of other people have written for Scary Monsters magazine. Very cool. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Let's talk about our upcoming episodes. We have a, a special episode, and I guess this will be our technically our October episode number 49. We have a special guest, David J. Skull, who has a new book out. 
Fright Favorites, 31 Movies to Haunt Your Halloween and Beyond. And it's a joint effort with Turner Classic Movies. He's the author of some seminal publications about the horror movie. He's a scholar, a commentarian, and we will enjoy the, the time that we can have with him. He's, he's making the rounds, doing a lot of other podcasts, but, you know, we'll put our own unique spin on it. And I would like to invite people, the, the original genesis for this idea was to do an episode about classic reference books for horror movies, ones that we grew up with. So if you've got a favorite book, call in and tell us about it. Something you still flip through today to reference if you don't go straight to Google, anything like that. We're going to kind of focus on horror reference books. And we'll ask David, you know, what some of his go-to books were other than the ones that he himself wrote. If you're not familiar with the name David J. Skull, first off, you know, please get out from underneath the rock. But you, you know him and you may not know him by name. Hopefully you do. But he did all those wonderful Universal Monster documentaries that popped up on DVD 20 years ago now and are still, in my opinion, the definitive fun little 40-minute documentaries they put about on every single release. And there's been 75 of them since then. And, you know, the Blu-ray that I have from the UK, the, the coffin box set, thankfully had all those on there as extras. And I... If I watch Frankenstein or Dracula or, you know, any of those, I have to watch that documentary. I have to, I have to watch it because they're so well done. And they have interviews with people like Carla Lemley, who has since long passed. You get a chance to see some of these great stars before they left us. I'm looking forward to, to get his new book. As we record, it's ordered and it's already out of it. It's available. It'll be arriving in two days. So uh, looking forward to uh, David virtually and, and talking to him uh, about, uh, I'm sure, his new book and uh, hopefully a little bit about his old books and projects and uh, pick his brain a little bit, which I think will be fun. I, I know, you know, you talk about reference books and, you know, I know which one's mine. I'm not going to reveal it now. You'll have to tune in next episode, but I'm going to want to ask him if he's familiar with the book and specifically the person who wrote it. I have a feeling he is. Look forward to hearing his comments. So that's episode 49. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a blast. Yep. And then that leads into our 50th episode extravaganza. Details to be announced soon, but it will be something special. And that happens just around Halloween time. So what a coincidence. We've done 50 episodes. We're not quite to our four-year anniversary, but we're closing in on it, which is awesome in so many ways. Other people, yeah, you can do 666 episodes <laughs> of a podcast. We're closing in on episode 50, and that's pretty darn exciting. Yeah, and you know, if someone wants to listen to a seven-hour podcast from us, all they have to do is put two episodes together. <laughs> well, and I will, uh, yeah, I, don't, I was going to say, I could tell them they could fast forward to one part. Yeah, fast forward to the end, maybe. If, it's a, if we do a seven-hour podcast, I guarantee you there's been a side rant or two somewhere along the way. So until then, let's remind people they can call. If you want to call and tell us about that reference book that's your favorite, it's 616-649-2582. Are you going to sing it this time, Richard? Six I'm going to sing it. Yes, Club! <laughs> All right. If you have a chance, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. 
We're going to go out with a song that's appropriate for these episodes. It's called Where Have All the People Gone? It's by a group called Gemini. And I must tell you that's spelled G-E-M, letter N-E-Y-E, Gemini, from their 2014 album Throwing Stones. That's available on Apple Music. Until next time, take care, everybody. Stay safe. Take care, everyone. Bye. Where have all the people gone? I've waited here so long. After all these years, I have to wonder what went wrong. Standing all alone in such a lonely state of mind. How could I have open eyes and yet still be so blind? Where have all the people gone? They seem so far away. 